Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Hello, welcome to today's episode of Impact the World, where my guest is Terry Cole. Terry has had a really fascinating journey in that she was a talent agent for models and celebrities for many years until doing a complete 360 in her early 30s and training to be a licensed psychotherapist. This has been her work and her passion for the last couple of decades. And alongside working one-on-one with people and creating her very popular Boundary Bootcamp five years ago, Terry has had a podcast for the last six years. And just lately or recently by the time this show airs, she is releasing her book, Boundary Boss. So Terry was new to me, um, but as soon as I saw a couple of her videos, I loved her sassy spirit and her truth telling, and I knew that I wanted to get her on the show. So we have a really good talk about boundaries, about why we struggle to set boundaries and what some of the underlying causes are, and also Terry's journey with her work and how her childhood set her up to work in this area and this field. Terry also has a free gift, which I will give you the uh, link for now. If you go to boundaryboss.me forward slash impact, she has a free gift around boundaries for all of our viewers and listeners. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Terry. And as ever, if you enjoy the show and you want to support us, it helps us enormously if you rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Terry, welcome to the show. It's really, really lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. I'm so psyched. Well, I was just telling you before we got started here, I had not heard of you until not many weeks ago. And you came across my radar and I checked out some of the stuff that you were doing. And A, I loved what you were doing and the vibe and the way that you do your work. And you are this brilliant blend of grounded, practical and, and of course, with your background as a therapist, you come from that world, but also the energetics of, of who we are as humans and how our patterns can get in our way or enhance our life if we understand them. So I was excited to have you on, especially because of your new book, which is right there behind you, and it's called Boundary Boss. It is. And how long <laughs> has that book taken you to, put, to, to, to bring to fruition, to bring to life? How many years are in that book for you? Well, here's the thing. Truthfully, my whole life is in that book. Like everything that I learned. So, I mean, it didn't, it didn't take me 15 years to write it, of course, but it was coming for that period of time because, you know, what do they say that you teach what you most need to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I had so much um, pain in my young life through not knowing what boundaries were or how to establish them or enforce them or even speak them really at all. And so it was through a long process of my own therapeutic, my personal you know, being in therapy and then becoming a therapist as like a second career, actually, because I was a talent agent for you know negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities for almost a decade prior to becoming a psychotherapist. And you know, 
firsthand that entertainment is not a hotbed of mental health Mm-mm. when it comes to boundaries, especially because it's very melded. So my own journey of realizing, wow, this is the thing that's missing in my life. I need to learn effective communication. I need to learn to, you know, what I, what I say in the subtitle of the book is um, it's Boundary Boss, the essential guide to talk true, be seen, and finally live free. And that I was not talking true almost at all. So my process, then being in entertainment and then being a psychotherapist, I had this whole epiphany. Like, oh my God, this is an epidemic where every person who came, every client who came into my office, even though their presenting problem was different and unique to them, whether it was not getting paid as much money as someone else at their office or having difficulties in their relationship or family of origin stuff, everything went back to the lack of this all-important skill set. I was like, oh my God, nobody is teaching this. We don't learn it at home. And if you're a woman, really, if you were raised as a woman, we were not only not taught it, right? We were literally taught the opposite of it. We were raised and praised, many of us, for being self-abandoning codependents. This is what meant you were a good girl, you're a good woman. You know, people love to say, she's amazing. She would give the shirt off her back to anyone. You want to be like, why? It's cold. Like, be discerning, maybe. But it's almost like the more self-sacrificing, the more praise. So anyway, that this is what I got interested in. And then I spent a long time in the trenches with my therapy clients, like actually doing it day to day. Um, just taking copious notes and coming up with interventions and accessible ways of getting to the information that my clients needed in their own unconscious mind, right? I don't have their answers, but I know where they are. So that was the whole process that led to it. Then I created a course that I ran for five years so I could in real life see what does work for people. What is accessible? What are the things that can go away? And then that became Boundary Boss. Perfect. Uh, you know, I loved something that you wrote in your bio and you just touched on it. You um, you said when it became evident that the things that I thought would make me happy didn't, so you said money, power, sexy job, I could no longer ignore the voice in my heart asking, isn't there something more meaningful you could be doing with your life than making supermodels richer? And I loved that line because I, I, I often think it, it, it takes us walking into the dream we thought was our dream to figure out we're in the wrong dream. And I, I know countless people with those stories. I'm curious, what led you into therapy at the time that you started uh, working with clients? Because that must have been a big 360 for you. And I'm sure there was trepidation about changing, especially from such a successful, established career. Yes and yes. My own journey, so so part of what was very influential is my own therapeutic journey, that I got into therapy very young. I was only 19, stopped drinking when I was 21 because of a therapy. I was in relationship with a therapist who was like, oh, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. I was like, wait, who? What do you mean? <laughs> no idea. I mean, I'm in college too. It was my senior year of college. I was like, P.S., everyone's an alcoholic if I am. And she was like, oh, they might be. And I don't care because you're the only one who I'm seeing. So if you don't get help, I will have to, I will terminate our relationship. 
And I was like, damn, is Bev breaking up with me? Like, can she even do that? Is that like allowed? Like she's ditching me. And so I did. She said, you you have to go to a 12-step program and just learn about this. So I did. And I had this very um, life, you know, a power pivot moment in that experience in Long Island, in a church, basement in a church in Syosset. Keep in mind, people, it was the 80s. So I want you to visualize, if you can, what I might have looked like with like my huge hair, crazy hair, long, crazy nails, anyway, lots of makeup. So I went into this, this meeting and there was a woman who was similarly shellacked to the way that I was. I thought she was very beautiful, <laughs> like mm-hmm. four pounds of makeup on. And she came over to be nice. And I was sitting by the door because I thought, well, I might need a quick getaway. I was also, you know, smoking my parliament 100s considerately because PS young people, everybody smoked. Um, They really did. And everywhere. And she came over and said, oh, are you new? And I was like, yeah, I am. And she was like, what brought you here? And I was like, well, my therapist threatened to break up with me if I didn't come to at least one 12 step. I mean, I just told the truth. And she said, oh, okay, well, welcome. I'm so glad you came. Here's the coffee. Here's the thing. And then just to be friendly and I don't know to be polite I said so so what brought you here and she said um I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident I was like yeah oh my god so in that moment I knew that that could have been me many times in my young 1980s 90s life and the gratitude that I felt I could barely keep it together for the rest of that meeting. I went into the car. I was bawling my face off because it was so real. And I was so relieved. It was like someone gave me a second chance in life to have that not be my story. Hmm. And so I made an, I really did make an agreement with the powers that be. That like, I got it. I see this. I know what you're giving me and I'm done. And I stopped drinking and I was a senior in college, actually. And that changed my life because now I was, wow, eyes wide open. And it shifted getting into therapy and self-help, right? Because that's what followed is a lot of self-help book and exploration, you know, the road less traveled. <laughs> that was member. Yeah, M. Scott totally Peck. Classic. Oh, so into it. And I couldn't believe that I thought, like, how is this a secret that nobody has told me? Like mm-hmm. I could just change the course of my life, myself, by understanding why I am the way I am. And I could use these tools to more deeply understand myself, but then to change the things. So it was as if I used to think like, oh, here's life. It's a game. Everyone gets a hand. You know, sometimes you're like, wow, my hand sucks. You know, what do I do with that? This experience made me realize I could get a new hand. I could get rid of that deck. I could literally create a new game which is what I did. And just from that point forward, I realized it didn't matter what I had experienced in my family. There was a lot of addiction in my family. Um, And, you know, just like anyone's family being sort of messed up, but that didn't have to be my future, right? I, I could choose a different path and I didn't have to waste 10 years of my young life, you know, lighting fires and wondering why I was getting burned, which is what would have happened had I continued drinking. I could start right now. So that really changed my life. So bringing it, that was the longest way around the barn to get to your question, (laughs) which was leaving entertainment and why. 
But I wanted to tell you that backstory because it was therapy that afforded me that early pivot that changed my life. So I was such a devotee of the process and of my own learning. And when I say evolution, I just mean self-knowledge, evolution, because I don't really know other evolution, but that, like knowing yourself. So when it was time to get out of the business, I kept thinking in entertainment, if it would be the next famous client that I had, or it would be the next job, the next place where I was running the place, then then I was going to feel the way I hoped I would feel. I kept, I was chasing this feeling, but then I got to that little place on the top of that little hill, whatever that was. And I was like, crap, I still don't feel the way I want to feel. And so that was a realization. And then I really started looking at the business itself. And I was like, dude, this is so not cool. This whole thing, this objectification. I had a niece who had a weight problem, a young niece at that time. And I was like, what are you telling her about her value? If you're a part of this machine where everyone should weigh zero pounds, there was a lot of internal realizations that I was having. And I remember telling my father that I was quitting my job and going to NYU um, to become a therapist. And he was like, sounds weird. (laughs) How old old were you at that point? Early thirties. Ah, yeah. So very established. I had, I had really accomplished a lot in a short period of time. And I thought, you know, the thing with ambition is like, it's very tricky. So I thought I'm just ambitious. I just, this is just my thing. I'm just, I'm just doing my thing. That's it. And then through therapy, I realized, so the whole time I thought I was running towards something. I had this realization, no, perhaps it was more me doing this, looking behind me and really running away from something, which was, I was the fourth daughter of a father who should have had sons. I felt like I was born the wrong gender. I was trying to prove I was better than any stupid boy he could have had. Like there was a whole thing happening as to why I was sort of killing myself. So that also helped me walk away from entertainment because I was like, okay, you you don't want to live your life for dad. And it's so interesting, the stories that kids like make up for themselves. When I asked my mom about that, when I said that, she was like, Terry, that's not true at all. And my parents got divorced when I was 13. So it isn't like, you know, she was protecting him. She was like, never, he never said anything like that. I was like, oh, so his disinterest in us, it was easier for me to make a reason that I was the wrong gender than to just accept that he just wasn't that interested in his kids, which was the truth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we make up these narratives to be like, well, that's slightly less painful. Anyway, moving into, it wasn't easy to change. And it wasn't, you know, I had to really look and say, hey, will I be okay being broke for a while? Because as much as I'd worked for a long time and I'd made a ton of money, I also spent a ton of money traveling and doing whatever the hell I wanted. So that was one thing to consider. But then I got to a point where I had to leave, where because I the only thing I cared about was the mental health of my clients, getting them into eating disorder clinics, drug treatment clinics, therapy. Like I no longer cared about the movie contract or the Pantene deal. And I was like, you're going to start really doing a crappy job. Like you need to get out of here. And that was when I just, I just pulled the trigger and I actually um, only applied to one grad school which is pretty nervy since I went to a crappy undergraduate school and it's not like I'm a genius, you know, I'm smart, but I'm not a genius. 
And I just thought, listen, if I'm not going to go to like fucking Omaha to go to grad school, like I've been living in the city for years, I can't. And I thought if I could just get an interview, I could explain how entertainment, this not hotbed of mental health was the thing that I could, you know, and I was able to actually get an interview and then I got myself in somehow. Fantastic. How many years were you training at that point? The, the, the program at NYU was a two-year program that I did in an in accelerated way. Mm. So I did it actually in 16 months. Wow. Okay. And then what was it like, you know, when you first started with your first clients? Like, what was your, what do you remember feeling? Uh, like I should be paying them. Right. I was like, hi, I was like a talent agent a minute ago is what it felt like. You know, the first, um, when I first was in in my first internship, it was a lockdown psych unit in the Bronx. So it was really far away from my Upper West Side apartment. And I had been running things for so long that even, I, I just wanted to learn. I was like, cool. And you know, you're in a situation where a lot of people are already burned out. No idea. I had literally no idea how dangerous where it was the place that I was, this was all people suffering from schizophrenia, violent offenders. They had all these ex-NFL football players who were the, basically the bodyguards, the security there. (laughs) But like the person who was supposed to be like watching me and teaching me, like was so done with her job. No one told me anything. Like on day one, I just was like, all right, I'm going to go into the unit and meet people and had like the scariest experience. And I was like, you know, you need to slow down. Like you literally don't know anything about this world. You can't just apply your winning formula that worked in entertainment to this place. So the learning curve was so massive, but it was once I learned, once I had a few scary experiences and got it together psychologically myself, I learned so much and I loved it so much. And I definitely learned that I did not want to work in a lockdown psych unit, but I learned a lot about schizophrenia and all the other things. So being in that learning curve of just being in grad school was uh, so um, energizing and inspiring. I was like, oh yeah, for the rest of my life, this is definitely what I want to be doing. That's beautiful. And I love that for you, you know, you were, I mean, you were, you were not old, but the early thirties, when you leave a successful career, it's (laughs) just a reminder that at any age, we can change if we have a passion and we feel to do something, we can go and do the learning and we can switch. I'm curious, Terry, you've, you know, you've touched on your journey with boundaries and, and I totally agree with you. I think we end up teaching, for me, it's a little of both. Sometimes it's what we need to learn or often is, but equally for me, I recognize that I've ended up working in a field that I desperately needed as a kid. Like I've ended up doing the very thing that if I had had in my life when I was younger, I would I would have been better adjusted sooner and not needed to go through all the, you know, the therapy and the self-help and all the stuff yeah. I did. But that was actually my initiation journey. But I'm curious for you, how do you feel today as the Terry that we have sat here with us with this book behind her mm-hmm. called Boundary Boss? How does the young you feel about this you know because the young you you said didn't have boundaries and didn't Mm -hmm. know what they were I mean how does it feel today to be sat here talking to me as one of countless people I'm sure that you're talking to about Mm -hmm. this book I'm just curious what it's like for you well the child the the young me 
is excited, but she's a little trepidation about being so um, visible mm. with this. Like I, she's, she knows we're an expert and like, we're fine. Like we're, our stuff is solid, but she's a little bit like worried about the um, visibility factor, which is so interesting. So I'm always, you know, soothing her and protecting myself. But it's interesting because, you know, I was always an outgoing kid, but it's different when you're, when you have the disease to please, right? When you're a people pleaser, when you are sort of the, I was the hero child sort of in my family system, because it's not really the real you, it's the role that you get so good at playing of being the helper, being the fixer, right? Being the one that everyone is like, but you're the rock. You're the one I come to. And I had a brilliant therapist in my 20s help me sort of reconcile the erection of the false self. And she had this great visual where it was like, you know, here's this shiny, successful, doing, you know, talent agent, sparkly life, life. But then behind this, and almost imagine it like a billboard, right? And behind the billboard is like little me, like sitting with like a scraped knee, my nose is running, I'm like dirty faced, like what? And there was this melding of realizing, and that was the, also the beginning of doing some shadow work of like true self acceptance and self love and, and self compassion. Hmm. Like why so hard? Why so pointing out all the things you did wrong? Like why not be kind to yourself? And that in my 20s, that, that was sort of shifting that relationship a little bit. So I feel like I have a pretty good relationship with my inner child now, but she's psyched. She's a little nervous. Of course. No, that's, and I think it's so important for people to hear that because one of the things I think can be a misconception when you see, for example, in your case, wow, boundary boss. She's really clear. She's really strong. I think it's important to remember that for any of us, when we're, when we're doing something in the world that's bigger than we normally do, whether it's putting a book out or whether it's saying that thing to our sister at the dinner table that we've been suppressing for years, mm -hmm. it, there's always going to be a little a part of us that, 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 that is a little uh, uncomfortable or needs to come along with us and, and kind of love that part of ourselves. Because you, to me, what you just described... I remember as a kid feeling I had an I had an extrovert side and I also had a role that I developed. But what I was not in touch with as a child or even aware of was my sensitivity. Mm. And it's like reclaiming sensitivity in my 20s and 30s allowed me to kind of reclaim the introvert part of me that I was just dragging along through all of these things and not looking after him, you know. Um, yeah. And now it's a balance of those two is, is how I stay balanced. But yeah, and I think many people will relate to that because sensitivity when we were younger was just not, it just wasn't discussed. No, people didn't even know it. It's like all, all the being an empath as a child and being a highly sensitive person, I was always so living in the dark, sensitive to light, never wanted the lights on. Like, And my mother was very, um, my father was pretty absent, but my mother was very in touch. She was very in tuned and she'd be like, Okay, like it, she didn't shame me or embarrass me or make me wrong for those things. She is that type of parent. And, and yeah, I'm lucky because I was the fourth one and she was pretty tired at that point. But I can remember being like a little, just little, maybe like two. And she would come all the way down and be like, 
so you want to do that? Like, are you saying yes? You don't, oh, that's, that's itchy. You don't want to wear it. You can take it off. We have something else. Like she was such, um, and she still is like just so amazing. And I feel so blessed that I had someone who didn't make me wrong for being a, like a baby empath that no one even knows what that is. She was just like, okay, that's your preference. Sure. So I did grow up thinking that what I thought um, mattered. Like, like in some way that I knew that it mattered somewhere what I thought or what I wanted, which I think was, it helped me be successful. That's beautiful. What would your mom uh, say about you that you specifically brought to her life or have, have brought into her life? She's embarrassing what she would say and what she does say to people. People are like, oh my God, I love your daughter. She's like, I know, she's amazing. I love her too. She's awesome. They'll say, she changed my life. My mother would be like, she changed mine too. So what wouldn't my mother say, Lee, about how friggin' amazing I am? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Because I I know many people where it's the other way and how wounding that can be. So that's fantastic. I think switching though, I think part of it, because I was the first person to get sober in my family, like probably honestly to answer the question, the most significant thing is that coming from an alcoholic system, my father was a high functioning alcoholic. My three older sisters, two of the three were absolute alcoholics and I was the youngest. So getting sober when no one else was sober was super not fun at Christmas, as you can imagine. I was drawing boundaries left and right of how long I would stay of, you know, and and I remember my mother saying early on in my sobriety, I said, um, you know, I I told her, I said, my therapist thinks I'm an alcoholic. And my mother said, because, you know, she, she didn't mean to be, but she was an enabler. She was like, oh, you know, Terry, maybe you have, you have a drinking problem. I was like, uh, <laughs> you could call it, maybe I have a hippopotamus, but what, hi, why are we splitting hairs? But she made her feel better to be like, maybe it's a problem. And then she said, and you know, just because you stop drinking doesn't mean everyone else has to, even though she was not a big drinker, but she didn't want the conflict that mm. she knew was going to come if I was like, hey man, everyone's got to get sober. I was like, dude, <laughs> Trust me, it's enough for me to continue to stop drinking. I cannot worry about anyone else. But I did go back and drag most of my siblings into sobriety with me over different ruptures or accidents where they almost died or whatever. And she'll always say how, you know, I taught the family to talk about these things and about addiction. And But they were open. I mean, listen, like, lucky me, right, that they were yeah. open. Yeah, And she was open to learning and seeing her part in being an enabler. And it just, yeah, I feel very blessed. Beautiful. So boundaries, let's talk about boundaries for a second. Um, yes, you please. have some wonderful, you know, if, if you go to Terry's website and we will put all of the links in the show notes and we'll put uh, your website up on screen uh, for the viewers who are watching, you have some great things like back to boundary basics, how to set boundaries with difficult people. <laughs> you have a whole range of um, different slants on boundaries. And I know that the people who know me and my work, we've I, I've certainly done a lot around boundaries over the years because like you, I gloriously had none. And sometimes <laughs> that was wonderful. And had I had magical experiences because of it. And sometimes mm-hmm. I had very slow, painful um <laughs> repetitive learnings until I, you know, woke up and got it. Yep. And it was interesting 
because one of the things that I remember around 12 years ago, I channeled a, a message that was all about boundaries. And one of the lines that came through my guides that I was channeling for this recording, which we transcribed, was to fully open your heart to life, you must learn boundaries. And I remember this was put out, this is about 2008. Oh my God. We put this out on a quote card and I was still learning this at that time, even though I'd come a a ways in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I was still, as, as is often the way with the channeling, it's it's new to me or it's the next wave of what I'm going to be learning to. And um, we had a lot of kickback and we don't get much kickback. You know, there's not a ton of conflict or negativity in my community usually, but I remember that quote card went out hmm. and it didn't have the contextualizing paragraph. And in the community I was working with at the time, which is very spiritual in nature, mm-hmm. there were a lot of comments like, that's not right. I don't want a boundary. I'm here to open my heart fully. And I remember reading some of those comments and I totally understood where some of them were coming from. Like I didn't think they were wrong, Mm -hmm. but I also saw how black and white they'd taken that sentence to be. And I was curious that it triggered something in us. Yes, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting trigger. And of course, the years have gone on and I I have a much richer understanding of it at this point. Mm -hmm. Curious for you, who has made boundaries a big focus in your life and your work, and you've heard so many stories. And what are our biggest objections mm-hmm. as human beings to creating boundaries in our life? What are our big triggers? Well, let's talk about the myths, because this these are the things that actually get in the way. So the most common, like I'll, I will just go through them quickly, but these are the things that I've seen over the many years of doing it. Boundaries push people away. Mm-hmm. Not true. Real love needs no boundaries, right? Intimate relationship, is, if, it's a, if it's a real thing, then it's unconditional. No, it's not. Boundaries are selfish. No. Setting boundaries require you to be mean. No. Boundaries require too much time. I want to be like, dude, do you know how much time it takes to be a boundary disaster? Trust me, that takes more time. (laughs) Um, Setting boundaries requires you to say no all the time, reject people all the time. People will like you less if you set boundaries. So those are like the top seven myths, I'd say. So let's get into, if we can, how why those things are actually not true. And, and I think that we should establish when, I, when I'm talking about boundaries, I'm gonna give you my definition so that we're sort of on the same page. It means that you know your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers. And you have the capability of communicating them clearly and concisely in your relationships, all of them. To me, that is being a boundary boss. We do this with ease, with grace, with love, when appropriate. Maybe not with love with your boss, but other people, right? When appropriate, it can always be done with kindness. So a lot of the fear and myths come from the fact that people who don't um, talk true, as I like to say, about how they feel, or wait too long to express that a boundary has been crossed Then we use like a sledgehammer when we could have just used like a pencil because we waited 
too long. And there's this cumulative effect of frustration, of anger, and of feeling like someone is taking advantage of us. But I make the distinction in the book that people fall into categories. You have your boundary first timers. Now, those are people that maybe they have been getting on your nerves, but you have never expressed with language, either written or verbal, your boundary request. So there's still a first timer because we got to give them a chance. We got to say it because you might be shocked that they might be like, maybe they're just tone deaf, right? This, this happens. Maybe they're just um, not dialed in. You know, some people are just not, they're not in, they can't sense, they can't read a room. Yeah, exactly. Right? Maybe they're just on Mars, but it doesn't mean that they're trying to trample your boundary. Then you have the repeat offenders. These are the people that you have expressed a boundary with or said no, and they've tried to work down your no, continue. Oh, why don't you, why don't you sleep on it? You've said no four times, and they're still asked, saying that you should sleep on it and give them the answer tomorrow. No. So those are repeat offenders. So we, we deal with them in a different way because eventually we need to add a consequence to something, right? And then we have boundary destroyers, which is like the category that boundary bullies also fall into. Boundary destroyers, I have an entire chapter in the book because these are people where the regular rules don't apply. A lot of times it might be narcissistic personality disorder, could be a bunch of the cluster B personality disorders, um, could be just super difficult people who are just contrary, who are just always trying to get their way, no matter what you say. So I literally have an entire chapter because what we do with boundary first timers and repeat offenders would not work with boundary destroyers. So let's talk about boundary first timers. Once you make your boundary request known or you set a limit or you make a request about a preference, because these are all forms of boundaries. So I want everyone listening to get or watching to get it in your mind. Boundaries are really not about just saying no. They're really not. They're about having your no be authentic so that your yes can be authentic, right? It's like if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no, right? You ever hear that Marie Forleo says that? There's truth that when you, if you have the disease to please, if you, have, if you are looking for validation outside of yourself quite a bit, if you say yes, when you really want to say no, that means that people can't trust you. Because they know, I know the people pleasers in my life. I was one. Mm -hmm. So trust me, people, I love you. No judgment. I was you, right? So I understand how hard it can be. But know that people know this about you. When my friend who's a people pleaser says she's going to do something, I say to my husband, yeah, Jenny said yes, but that, that means about 50% chance that she's in. It's okay. It's the way she is. I can accept Jenny. I love other things about her but I don't count on her. And then I have like Lara, you know, my best friend who, if she's a yes, we could have talked about it eight months ago and had a plan for like Saturday. And at that moment on Saturday, she'll be like, hey, I'm on Skype, where are you? Like, yeah, she will not forget. Her yes is her bond. Her no is the truth. So I don't worry that she's lying to my face to make herself more comfortable. Because another thing, Lee, that we really love to do, and I was the queen of this, is so much of this we do under the guise of being nice. Like, 
I just don't want them to think I'm mean. I just want to be nice. You know, I just, I just want to, it's not nice to say yes when you want to say no, because what ends up happening is either we do the thing with like a begrudging energy, we're kind of keeping score, like, yeah, she better appreciate that thing that I did that I didn't want to do, right? Or we bail at the last minute where you know, you say yes to things that you really don't want to, you find a way to have a headache on that day. And again, that's letting people see you as someone who they can't count on or who doesn't keep their word. And there's a lack of respect a lot of times that will happen. I remember in my young life in therapy with that therapist when I was in college, I was just telling a story about, you know, um, I said I had a flat tire because I was late to work. So in the end of that session, she said, okay, so today we've established that you're a person who lies. And I was like, holy crap, am I? She was like, well, yeah, you overslept and said you had a flat tire. That's lying. Like, oh my God. And all of a sudden I go, you know, Bev, I don't want to be a person who lies. She's like, okay, we'll start working on that next session. <laughs> like <laughs> she like changed it for me though, you know? Yeah, completely. That is lying. So anyway, long way, I'm coming back, don't worry, to the boundary first timers. But I feel like the yes and no stuff is really important because there is a misunderstanding in there too that of what is what is it to actually be legitimately kind? It is the most loving thing that you can do to talk true in your relationships. You are giving people the honor of actually knowing you. And when we don't give them the right intel, the right data about us, they're confused. <laughs> they think we like things that we don't. They think we're mad about something else because we're, we're indirect about how we're expressing our displeasure, right? We're slamming a door or rolling our eyes or not getting back to them for five hours rather than just saying, hey, I'm really upset. I, I have to, I want, I want to put this on your radar. I did not appreciate. This is how I felt. I felt minimized, whatever, whatever the thing is. And I give you all the scripts. The whole chapter is just scripts. So don't worry. You, <laughs> you'll have the words when you need them. But the most crucial part of becoming masterful at boundaries is so that people know you because your preferences, your desires, your limits, your deal breakers, those things are what make you Lee Harris. Those things about you are what make you, you. Just like those things about me are what make me uniquely and beautifully myself. So when we hide that or deny it or repress it, we're not allowing ourselves to, you know, like expand into who we could become, who we're meant to become, because we're walking on eggshells, because we're keeping ourselves small to avoid rocking the boat. But when, as um, I think it was, who said it? It's a great quote. It'll come to me. Where when we like shut ourselves down to keep the peace when we don't speak up to keep the peace, we start a war within ourselves. Yeah, I've heard that quote. Myself. Cheryl Richardson, that's who, Cheryl Richardson. Very yeah. good, yeah. It's interesting, you know, because as I'm listening to you, a couple of things are like pinging from over the years with boundaries myself. And, and the first thing I, I totally remember, like in my, specifically, I think in my early 20s, making up stories to kind of comfort people. 
exactly the same thing like oh well i'll i'll say this because i wouldn't want to upset them like and and that was how thick my people pleasing uh armor was at that point but i i realized years later both through my own kind of growth and also through working with people one-on-one -on -one, that for the people that i was often working with and who were attracted to me and who were similar to me in certain ways it was the avoidance of conflict or discomfort that would stop us putting boundaries in place. Either conflict with someone else or the discomfort of their discomfort if we said no. And that was a big one for me. That was like a light bulb in my late 20s. I don't feel comfortable as the healer and the helper and the, the role-based person standing in front, being in the room with someone's discomfort that I'm not solving or helping or healing. And of course, a lot of the people I've worked with over the years have been healer types or healers for work. And so there's that piece that comes up. But the one thing that I've always expressed to people is if you state your boundaries successfully a few times and get, be very patient and kind to yourself when you do it inartfully or ineffectively the first few times, you know, the first few times you're just getting used to the discomfort in your body of the fact that you're doing it. But once you've learned to do it in a few areas of your life, you'll hold a vibration that is going to be different. It doesn't mean you don't still have to assert the boundaries, but I think some people, their big objection I've heard is, I don't want to be a person who's always asserting my boundaries. And I'm like, if you learn to assert your boundaries in a few key places, people will smell your boundary on you and they won't mess with you. So it's, you know, it's like we, we, we kind of hold that, um, that energy field of there, there are people who walk into a room and you're like, oh, I'm not going to mess with them. And it doesn't mean that they're intimidating necessarily, but you can feel when someone holds their power and as you call it, their truth in yes. their body and in their way of communicating. That is such a great point of you don't have to reassert them like every third second of your life. What changes though, is that the whole, the whole process of becoming a boundary boss and the way that I teach it, it all starts with your relationship with yourself. Mm. And really the truth, right? Self-love is the only path to any other love worth having. I mean, that's, that's just the truth because if not, we're just looking for someone else to fill a bucket that only we can fill. It's a whole thing that leads us to not great places. And the cracked pot always finds the cracked lid. So when we have very disordered boundaries, very porous boundaries, we call them if they're very malleable, we will find the takers, the predators, the ones who were like, oh my God, you can't say no. I can't stop saying gimme. Like, woo, can't wait. We're going to be great together. So the, this shift in relationship, when you fall madly deeply in love with yourself, when you treat yourself with the love, the kindness, the consideration, which is so much of what the beginning part of the book is, is unearthing our downloaded boundary blueprint, which is in the unconscious mind through all of these different activities that we do. You know, we just learn from our family of origin, oh, this is how you're supposed to interact. This is what you do when you're angry. This is how you problem solve or don't. All of that family system, is it very enmeshed? Is it very separate? Those things all set us up to relate to boundaries a particular way. So that's there. That's like one thing. But you, how you treat yourself in the, in the middle of all of this, sets the bar 
for every other relationship in your life. So if you have a low opinion of yourself, if you don't think you're worth consideration, you will inevitably attract others who agree with your self-assessment. So we're always working on raising our self-care, our self-consideration. And I'm always saying to my clients, your preferences matter and why it's in the book all over the place and why I put that as a part of what boundaries are is that people are so quick to say, I'm good, it's cool. Mm. No muss, no fuss, you know me, I'm easy. And you're like, but are you though? And why do we feel like someone should throw us a parade for being easy when I'm actually interested? You know, I first met my husband. He was just so, he was widowed, three acting out teenage sons. His wife had died when they were little kids. I came in 12 years later and it was a fucking disaster. But I just loved him so much. I was like, you could have four to four teenagers. And I was like, <laughs> love will find a way, babe. Like, oh, that's love, Terry. 44 teenagers. All right. Well, trust me, <laughs> three felt like 44 sure. as they were getting into trouble and doing all these bad things. But I used to say to him early on, because I'm such a talker and I just want to know what you're thinking. And, mm. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, I said, you know, babe, if there's anything that I'm doing that's like bothering you or I could do differently, I really want you to tell me. The first time I said that to him, he was like, is there a problem? Is something wrong? Are you mad? Are you upset? Are we in trouble? Is something going on? I was like, no, babe. Well, you always want there to be a problem. There's not a problem. I was like, no, babe. I don't want there to be a problem. I am specifically interested in what you think. And if there's something that I could shift specifically, I would like to do that. And if you don't tell me, I won't know it. So it took a while for him to get how like much friggin' work this relationship this was going to be. Crap. <laughs> what's, <laughs> the, what's the, what's the, whoa, I'll tell you. And then you'll, you know, that, that's probably what's going through he his mind. Definitely thought it was a setup to something. And the only thing he could come up with, he's like, you know, you have all that hair. After you wash your hair, sometimes it stays in the drain. Could you take it out of there? I was like, of course. And 24 <laughs> years later, I've literally never washed my hair and not waited for the water to go down and clean the drain and not thought of him lovingly. Mm. Like, it's not that there's a problem. It's that that level of communication and preference, which was my point, is the way that we can also love each other better. Be considerate of even the small things and for yourself. You know, how much of the time do we go, it's fine? How about it should be an awesome? Why, why, why fine? How about let's make changes? So the, for one of the first things we do in the book is you do this massive inventory of the okay and not okay list where Everything from like the lighting in your office to the sheets on your bed to the way you're having sex with your spouse or whomever, like all of it. So that you start thinking, because I know from my practice, my therapy practice, that I would ask the women who come in and I would say either something like, what brings you joy? They'd be like, never thought about it. I'm like, okay, well, let's, all right, that, that's a start. But then I started asking like, what, what is working for you and not working for you in these areas? And they're like, oh, no, listen, it's fine. I don't want to make a big deal. <laughs> I'm like, why is you having your preference met by you? Literally things you could do for yourself. Why is that making it a big deal? It's not. 
It's treating yourself with consideration. And why shouldn't we do that? I don't, I don't know where I was going, but there we are. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. There, yeah, there's, there's a lot of light bulbs going off right now on the other side of this conversation. <laughs> um, so Terry, I'm curious, you know, you've done this, this body of work now on boundaries, because as well as the book, you have blog posts, you have a quiz, you have, you have a whole, you also have your boundary bootcamp, right? Which is your course that you said you started five years ago, but you also started a podcast and I, I'm not sure what year you started your podcast. 2015. 2015. And I'm curious, what was that like for you? So what was the ethos behind your show and and how has the experience of, of doing a show been for you? You know, it's so interesting. It, it's transformed so much. Um, I'm just so fascinated by people. I find you incredibly fascinating. Like, I want to ask you, like, I'm literally, we're not even done. And I can't wait to be like, please come on my show. <laughs> because I'm so interested in what, what experiences that people have in their early lives that... Mm. Um, impact where, where they end up. And like, like you're asking me these questions, a lot of them are similar, like why and what, and what is it like? What is that like for you? Because I find this human condition and humans in general, I just friggin' love people. I'm so mesmerized by our potential and by our moxie and by our cruelty and by our, all of the things that are humans so that was really the, the desire was to have a platform so I could interview people whose work I love. And then it changed a lot. For a while, I did just myself talking. First, I only interviewed people. And then my people were saying, we just really want it to be you. So then for like a bunch of, for a long time, I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I don't need to do the blog, the video, and the podcast being like all, like, dude, I was putting out so much content as ridiculous. Clearly, I needed a marketing manager. <laughs> like. Uh, it could all be the same thing, but I love, love, love doing it now. I'm interviewing so many interesting people and you have to come on my show. <laughs> I would love to. I would love to. No, definitely. And, um, and it's interesting you say that because I remember there was a point very early on in this show where I'd agreed I would do some episodes that we were going to call insight episodes. And, you know, my social media manager very quickly pointed out to me, they were the most popular episodes and they do really well on YouTube and da, da, da. You know, and I was like, okay, but I don't want to do those anymore. I'm actually, you know, I, I produce a lot of content. I'm loving the conversations. And for me, I'm loving getting to kind of, there's a personal side, which is, you know, meeting you, delightful. I'm loving learning more about you. But I also hold an ethos for the listener that we're going to see a range of people doing a range of different things. And there'll be some similarities, but why are we different? How is what we do in the world different? So you know, so I ended up following my passion with the show more than worrying about numbers or any of that stuff. Um, even though I appreciated his feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> You're like, but I'm the one who has to do it and I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, but um, I'm curious, what's, well, this is a really weird question for me to ask you because you're releasing this book into the world. And so I know that that will bring with it a whole new wave for you. And I don't know what that will be, and you may not yet fully know mm -hmm. what it is, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to do different things in the world. There's going to be a different ripple effect for you. So it's going to bring new experiences and new people to you. But I'm curious, do you have a vision or a, 
a feeling or a hunch about what might be next for you in the coming few years? So it's a premature question, but I feel compelled to ask mm-hmm. it. I think that my my heart's, you know, my, it feels like my dharma, my, my mission, you know, is to impact as many people around the world as I possibly can in this positive way to give these tools. Because I knew as a therapist, I knew it wasn't me. I knew, I believe I'm perfectly special and regular all at the same time. But I knew that the truth was I did not possess the magic. I was just holding up the mirror to my clients so they could see their own. And I knew, even though therapeutically, listen, what I'm doing is not popular amongst now people want to do it. But when I started doing it, they were like, I don't know if that's ethical. You're a psychotherapist. What are you doing? Blah, blah. I was like, listen, trust me, I'm figuring it out. I'll I'll do it the way that I do it because a lot of therapists want or, or need the way that their business is built clients to like need them, you know? And I never, even when I only had that and no, no public anything, I was always like, no, I'm going to teach you skills. I'm going to teach you strategies you do not need me. I would always be like, I think you should take the summer off. I feel like you should spread your wings. Like They're like, why is she ditching me? But I wasn't. I wanted them to know. I don't want to be a crutch for you because then I'm not really helping you. Then, then I'm centering myself in your experience. Anyway, so when I started teaching this, this complex therapeutic stuff in courses, People were like, you're nuts. And I was like, no, no. You know why? Because my audience is smart as hell. And I know that if I am a good and clear and concise coach, and if I can take these theoretical things and make them accessible, like I did for the course and like I do in the book, they don't need to be in therapy for 20 years. And if they want to, like I want to, I love being in therapy. I will be in it forever. But it's not necessary to do that in my estimation. I was like, I know that this is this will translate. So I want to continue making anything that will lessen the suffering and increase the joy. And the it's really the sovereignty, right? It's the, I want to help people become truly self-determined. Mm. Mindful, what you are doing is your choice instead of feeling trapped in their lives. So I could see that going a bunch of ways. I'm sure there'll be other books. I really love to talk. I'm sorry. Did I just talk the whole time while I was on the show? <laughs> That's I why I have you on the show. So thank you for doing exactly what I was hoping you would do. You people pleased me very well. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Maybe a talk show. I don't know. I would do that, you know. But just more of the same. And now that the world is opening up again, I mean, not not prematurely, like I feel like in another six months, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I want to go back to speaking publicly and going to Cali and all the places. I was supposed to go all over the world with this book. I had three I had three cities in Australia, four cities in Europe, and we were doing eight in the US. Wow. And I did none. And you know what? I'm kind of psyched. Like it's okay, but I would like to do that at some point. So maybe the next book. Of course. And, you know, the irony, of course, is that the, the for, for those of us who had to cancel live in the room events, we suddenly became more accessible to other people online. So that's the kind of golden kind of silver lining, if you like. But that sounds fantastic. I can see you doing a very good talk show, by the way. Um, all the other stuff is great, but I can definitely, like, I'm holding a flag for that one because I think, um, I think 
good conversations between people are, for me anyway, really illuminating. Like, you know, I love hearing what's going on for people and how are they thinking and feeling their way through life. So, yeah, that would be great. Well, we're about to close our conversation, but I know that you have a special uh, gift for all of our viewers and listeners. So perhaps you could walk us through what that gift is. Okay. To get it, you're going to go to boundaryboss.me forward slash impact. And I created a lesson, basically. So it's video and then a downloadable guide about how to protect your energetic boundaries, your own bandwidth. Um, and so I walk you through. You're going to do. Um, you're going to basically see what relationships in your life are really draining your energy and your bandwidth. And again, not because we need to break up with anybody, because we need to see. Where is that happening? And what are the things that you could do? I'm going to give you ideas of things that you could shift. I'm going to give you some, some simple um, language that you can use. So it's sort of like some sentence starters, ability to say no, make that a teeny bit better than it is. I think you're going to love it. And then I give you two other things to do. One, it's called top of mind, which is like raising your awareness about something for 24 hours. And then in the go deeper um, you're going to be, that's where you'll be taking the relationship and energy inventory so you can see where you are in your relationships. Beautiful. So that's boundaryboss.me forward slash impact. And we'll also put that on the screen for those of you who are watching. And we will put it in the written show notes for you. So, Terry, it has been delightful. You are delightful. I love what you're doing in the world. And um, it's been really great to get to know a bit more about your why. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I loved this conversation and I super appreciate what you're doing in the world and can't wait to have you on my show. Definitely. I will. I will. We'll, we'll set it up after this. So <laughs> best of luck and love with the book. And for those of you who tuned in today, whether you were watching or listening, Terry Cole's book is called Boundary Boss. And we will put links to Terry's website, her Boundary Bootcamp and her book can be found there and also the free gift that she's giving all of you. So thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thank you, Terry. And we will see you next time on Impact the World. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Impact the World. And if you want to go deeper and more in depth with my work, you should check out my members group, The Portal. You can find it at my website, leeharrisenergy.com or visit theportal.world.